Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I am your host, Tyler Cobble, and each week we are bringing you the hottest news in commercial real estate from across the country and sometimes across the world. Uh, today is April 12th. Let's dive into the news that came out this week in Nashville. So Oracle has been teasing Nashville for the last two years, talking about how much they want to come to the city and join us, which not really surprising considering they just relocated their headquarters to Austin, Texas. So Oracle has actually uh, officially put a, a contract on a piece of property up in River North. So uh, this is an exclusive from the Nashville Business Journal, Oracle Corp's purchase contract for massive River North Tech Hub confirmed. Pretty cool to see that actually uh, being reported. So uh, the owner of a River North development site uh, has sent his tenants a legal document to sign that bears the name of what would become their new landlord, Oracle. So they actually sent them um, uh, what's called an estoppel certificate, which basically confirms the, the leases that uh, they have in place and you would only do that when you're selling the property and so um, it looks like one of the tenants probably notified the Nashville Business Journal um, that this process was taking place looks like uh, they learned it from uh, Don Allen the principal uh, they received a notice uh, okay so tenants at River North received a notice from representative for Don Allen which is the principal of Chicago-based Monroe Investment Partners um, on April 6th uh, in it, Allen confirms a pending sale of his property and gives tenants a legal document to sign. Um, again, going into the estoppel certificate there. So it's uh, Oracle America Inc., which is a subsidiary uh, of the tech giant. And this is a pretty big deal. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the deal is closed, but it does mean that they are on the one-yard line getting everything wrapped up, buttoned up, before they head to closing. So... Uh, that's a that's a pretty big deal. They're they're buying a pretty good chunk um, apparently from uh, from Monroe Investment Partners. It hasn't been disclosed yet how many tenants received that um, uh, the the estoppel notices. So there's no telling how much of the property uh, Oracle is actually buying. Uh, but Monroe Investment Partners, um, who've actually declined to comment uh, at this time, I'm sure they're waiting for the project to actually go through. Uh, owns around 90 acres of land on uh, in the in the River North area. So um, let's see, 90 acres of land, excluding what they sold in mid 2019 to developers MRP Realty and Creek Lane Capital, who is currently under construction on a 250 million dollar mixed use development along the waterfront. That was a big announcement a few weeks. Ago. Well, I guess it was it might have been a couple months ago. Um, the city finally came to terms with how much uh, they are willing to pay in infrastructure. If I remember correctly, it was around 15 to 20 million dollars to help make improvements and much needed improvements in the area. And so, as soon as that uh, was settled, uh, you know, MRP and Creek Lane basically broke ground um, and started started developing that site, which is pretty cool. Um, I mean, that's it is a big deal. It's it's interesting looking at the river and in Nashville and seeing how little is actually developed along the riverfront. You know, you look at cities like Chicago, which is where Monroe Investment is from. I believe that's also where MR, no, Creek Lane, eh, it's either MRP Realty or Creek Lane Capital is also from Chicago. Um, 
you know, Chicago has very heavily built up along the riverfront. Now, uh, granted, it's a much, much bigger city, but they've really taken advantage of, of their riverfront property, and, and Nashville just hasn't. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, back in the day, you know, the, the Newhoff Slaughterhouse was there, and there was a bunch of, uh, you know, carcasses being dumped in the river, and, and there was, as well as chemicals from other manufacturing plants. And so it just, it wasn't, you didn't want to be in near the water. Um, let's see. It's been more than two years since Oracle's interest in Nashville first became public. Um, since then, wow, yeah, they've been, you know, recruiting, making many recruiting trips to California um, since Mayor John Cooper took office um, to continue to try and get uh, Oracle to, to, to move here. Okay, so here it is. On February 3rd, Metro Council approved a $20.9 million plan to build infrastructure in a 40-acre piece of River North, which is the southern end closest to Topgolf. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot coming for River North. This is at the base of East Nashville, uh, right there. Uh, Dickerson Pike basically runs into it once it crosses the interstate. And, I, you know, if you all have been following me or anything that I'm doing, I'm big on Dickerson Pike. I think it's one of the best corridors in Nashville if you're looking for potential. Uh, it's just untapped, and I think the value is there. So this is going to be a huge announcement. Um, this is, I'm sorry, this is the first of many huge announcements that's going to come from this parcel of, of land. Andy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Tyler, and I think the one of the cool things to highlight here, too, is that not only is Oracle probably coming in as a major, major tenant going to be bringing, it's likely going to rival, you know, Amazon in terms of their thousand jobs, you know, or a couple thousand jobs. It's going to be up there. And not only are they coming in, Amazon signed a 20-year lease at the Nashville Yards, as, as people know, 1.5 million square feet or something like that, something ridiculous. But yeah. Oracle is actually going to be buying the land. So in terms of a major technology software's company commitment, this goes way beyond just being a tenant. They are committed. They are all in on Nashville. So if these big tech companies are ready and willing to even be able to buy, that actually sends a stronger signal to me about the growth and the state of Nashville right now than even Amazon signing did. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, I mean, it's 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 huge. Um, didn't we talk about Oracle a couple weeks ago and that they backed out of a 750,000 square foot lease in California or something? Yeah, I think so. Um, that sounds familiar. I can't I mean, remember that's exactly a, where it was. Yeah, we'd have to go back and look. But, I, I mean, that's that's big news for them to be backing out of a deal like that and still moving forward on Nashville. Uh, and here it is. Yeah, if solidified, the deal with Oracle would transform a swath of the industrial East Bank on the Cumberland River, which is opposite Germantown and immediately north of downtown. It's basically if you're if you're not in Nashville and you're wanting a better reference point, it's basically north of the Titan Stadium. Um, it could. This is cool. Would create multiple thousands of jobs in an economic development deal, as Andy said, that would rival the scale of the largest deals in state history which is incredible. I mean, when Amazon announced, they were 5,000 jobs, which I don't know if Nashville had ever seen something that big before. Um, it's likely. I don't know the history of, of job announcements in, in Nashville, but 5,000 jobs all at once is, is a pretty big deal. So good things to be coming from, uh, uh, from Oracle, and, and keep an eye on River North. That's, that's, uh, that's going to change probably more than any – 
section of Nashville over the next five years. Um, and it will be unrecognizable in 10. All right, this next article coming at you from the Nashville Post. New images released for River North Project. So we're diving further into that deal that we were just talking about. This is actually not the Oracle deal. This is the one that Monroe Investment Partners sold to uh, MRP. Uh, and and uh, the I think, yeah, yep, uh, Creek Lane Capital. So development team behind the landings project in River North has released some new images of their plans. Let's see here. They are going to update the existing industrial building on the site and construct some residential buildings, each of which will stand seven stories. That's awesome. Uh, the buildings will be called the Oxbow and the Wayward. I love that name, the Oxbow. That's a great, that's just a great name. That's good marketing. Um, will comprise a collective 651 residential units and 43,000 square feet of ground level retail space. Love that. Going in on mixed use, big fan of mixed use. And this is a perfect area to be doing it too because, um, you know, River North is going to be incredible, but there's nothing worth walking to over there right now um, outside of Top Golf, which are you going to really go to Top Golf every day? Uh, so bringing in the retail with the residents, bringing the residents in with the retail, it's just a win-win for both kinds of real estate. Uh, the landings will be supplemented by four new streets, uh, the more than $21 million cost of which will be privately funded, uh, as well as an outdoor dining and plaza area structured and surface parking, and a connection to a planned bike path in the existing Cumberland River Greenway system. This is going to be a really cool development. I mean, as far as, you know, green, uh, you know, being green goes, as far as being tech forward, as far as being, you know, mixed use, I mean, it's got everything that the future of development really wants, which is really cool to see. Um, so again, it's MRP Realty. Um, in Chicago-based Creek Lane Capital that are doing this project. Um, it's over off of Cowan Street, and they're expecting it'll take about 24 months to build out. Looks like they will have a phase two, which will include buildings with more than 500 residential units and 50,000 square feet of retail. Uh, that's pretty cool. So a segment of the landings will sit adjacent to Topgolf. Topgolf was a big deal uh, when that came to Nashville because it really signified that stuff could start happening in River North, because everybody's been talking about it for years and years and years. Um, but, you know, until until Topgolf happened, didn't, didn't really see much going on over there. This one was also cool. Uh, this is a neat little announcement. So Madison Property sells for $14.5 million. Andy actually sent this one to me, I think, early this morning, because we just closed on about 32 acres up in Madison, um, and this sets a very good comp for us. So this is over off of Cheyenne Boulevard, um, and Larkin Springs Road, it's about 39 acres, and it sold for $14.5 million. Um, so I, I love that. And they're going to take it uh, residential, I believe is what you said, right? Right, Andy? Yeah, it's a manufacturing home community. It's zoned residential. Cool. Manufactured home communities. We'll be talking about you know more about that here in a minute. Andy, any other thoughts on the landings? Yeah, if you want to pull up the pictures, Tyler, uh, while we while we talk about it so we so our viewers at oh, home perfect. can see the beautiful pictures i mean this is the type of project that's going to be coming to nashville that's it's that's incredible i mean we really don't have many things like this where you have well-planned outdoor space 
retail and residential and office mixed use all coming together. These projects that are coming done in River North all together, it's, it's Tyler said it before, but it really cannot be overstated how transformational it will be to have projects like these here in Nashville. That's a cool looking building. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. Wow. The red box jutting out from it. Yeah, I wonder what that is. I mean, it, obviously, it looks like they've got restaurant space on the ground floor there because they've got umbrellas outside, but that, that must be office space. That's really I cool. I think it has to be office building, yeah. Yeah, and the only way that it's facing the river, that building is. I mean, a lot of these things, too, as we've mentioned, are going to be connecting to the Greenway and public park system. And it's just not only are the residents and tenants of this area going to enjoy that, but anyone who comes to Nashville is going to really benefit from the investment into public parks and public spaces. And that's what that's what happens when you create a well-designed master plan community. It's We're going to be likely adding a lot of those kind of things too on our Madison property, you know, where we're going to have parks and green space. And when you build these projects that are integrated with the community, you can do really well and you can do cool things. And, and that's, that's what we love to do. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's going to be paramount for developers moving forward to think that way. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we've talked about this multiple times on the show, but the buildings that got hit the hardest, or the developers or the investment groups that got hit the hardest in COVID were the ones that were focused in one direction. It was the, the groups that owned, you know, off, just single office buildings, right? Or the groups that owned only hotels. You know, most of the most of the groups that owned mixed use properties did okay, right? Because if you've got apartments sitting sitting above, you know, ground floor retail with a couple floors of office space, you did just fine. Um, you know, because you, you kept collecting rent. So I, I think uh, I think planning out these communities so that people can live, work, and play within, you know, one area, especially as traffic gets worse and people want to be able to just walk out their doors and go have cool experiences, um, that'll become more and more important. Nashville, among the top 10 fastest-growing biotech hubs for job opportunities. Pretty cool. This one's coming from WKRN. Um, let's see, the last 12 months have proven that the biotech industry plays an important role in our economy, and it's becoming more popular in Tennessee. In the past two years, we've seen a number of technological breakthroughs and, uh, let's see, fueling growth among a wide variety of life science companies like August Bioservices. They expect to expand their workforce from 65 to 240 high-quality jobs here in Nashville in the next few years. Pretty interesting. It's, it's not surprising. Um, you know, the, the biggest drivers uh, of companies like this, I feel like every time uh, we see a company or an industry make a big announcement um, about Nashville, it's they always list the exact same reasons. Nashville's lifestyle, the cost of living, the talent pool. You know, you've got so many educated younger millennials here um, and the demographic advantage are all contributing factors to its popularity and reasons why the biotech companies are choosing to move to Middle Tennessee. I mean, I, I think that that's it's it's just a no brainer. You think about where they're coming from. You know, biotech companies are largely moving out of Silicon Valley. And so to be a, if you're able to get as good of a talent pool in Nashville, Tennessee, where you're not having to pay state income tax, you're not having to pay all of these all the other taxes um, and you're in a business friendly environment, a business friendly state. 
and you have this cool lifestyle that's just generally not nearly as expensive, why wouldn't you do that, right? Um, looks like within the last year and a half, Nashville has welcomed around five biotech or biopharma-related companies to the area with one or two more on the way, which will be announced soon. Uh, biotechnology involves the use of living systems and organisms to develop or make products like antibiotics and hormones. I would imagine soon it will also include uh, like biologic or uh, lab-grown meat, which, you know, um, hopefully we start getting more of that going here in Nashville. I think that would be really a great thing for the city. I'm down well, for some lab-grown burgers, Tyler. Yeah, man. I, uh, I've actually never even had like an impossible burger or, uh, one of the other ones, really? but I've, I've heard really good things about them. Yeah. The impossible burger is actually pretty good. That thing actually, it bleeds because they copied yeah. the, the protein heme or whatever that causes meat to bleed. They copied it and made it from plants. So it actually tastes like meat. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. I listened to, um, I listened to uh, what's that? What, who's the founder of LinkedIn? Uh, he's got a podcast called uh, Masters of Scale, and he had uh, the guy that started uh, uh, Impossible um, on there. I think it was Impossible. It might have been the rival company. In which case, like, sorry, I totally got that one wrong. But it was really cool hearing them talk about that because they went through that process of like, how can we biochemically recreate meat using plants? Because really, at the end of the day, if you think about it meat is it's broken down plants right the cow's body basically takes plants and turns it into meat so yeah uh pretty cool that they could they could do that in a lab exactly right. so impossible if you guys are listening nashville is a great place for you to come we'd love to help you come here yeah yeah give us a call i'd love to try i'd love to try the burger all right let's move on to market watch this week uh, is actually, we're coming at you with a city that I teased a little bit in my Commercial Conversations Over Coffee podcast with Bruce Peterson, uh, which we do every Friday. But uh, it's a city where he is buying a second home and for very good reasons. Where am I talking about? Well, it's Salt Lake City. So, of course, we're going to start off um, with the ULI Emerging Trends in Real Estate uh, PDF again. I say this every week. If you don't have this, go check it out. We will have it in the show notes, a link to it. Uh, but Salt Lake City is rapidly growing. It's It's been on all of the lists with Nashville, Austin, Charlotte, um, Seattle. You know, it's up there because it is one of the, um, what they're calling, I think it's boom cities or something like that. But it's magnetic. So overall real estate prospects for Salt Lake City, it is number seven in the country. Uh, just behind Tampa, St. Petersburg, and it's above D.C., ahead of Boston, Long Island, Atlanta, San Antonio. I mean, it's beating out Atlanta, which is crazy because I feel like Atlanta has not stopped growing for like 50 years. In terms of home building prospects, they're number 18, so they're a little bit lower on the list, but still, you've got to take that in. I mean, let's look at the, the global picture here. How many cities are in the United States, and it's ranked number 18? Again, it still beats D.C., which has a crazy housing market beats Charleston, which has a very small, like it's a small, but like tight housing market that, um, you know, people are trying to break into, but there's just not a whole lot of room. Uh, Miami, it's beating Miami in terms of home building prospects. That means something. All right, let's see what else we got here. I yeah, okay. Part so of the reason, Tyler, too, the home building is a little bit lower for Salt Lake is because their geography is a little bit more difficult for, you know, 
wide open swaths of land to build houses. And I believe that's part of that factor. That would make sense. And they also, I would imagine too, that any wide open land that they have, because I mean, you've got a lot more uh, government owned land out there. So that, mm-hmm. that probably makes it more difficult too. But it could also be a, a factor of there's so much land and it's so easy to build on because there is so much land that maybe it's just, you just can't get the returns that some of these developers are getting in, in a city like Atlanta where it's just, they're about, they're about out of land. Um, okay, going to emerging trends. So this is a major group. Uh, they're under the Magnets group um, in 18-hour cities, which is just like Nashville, right? So Nashville's in that group. You've got Austin, Charlotte, Denver, Portland, Raleigh, Durham, Seattle, San Diego, which is interesting. San Diego is the only, like, uh, San Diego to me is a huge outlier in that group. But, um, you know, so, of course, it's, it's getting thrown in there with all these other major cities, and it's closer to the West Coast. So if you're going to really capitalize on the California flight, it's probably a pretty good bet for you. Um, again, if you don't know what an 18-hour city is, it's, it's the cities that are uh, they're popular in migration destinations uh, because of the lifestyle, culture, and employment opportunities, but they're not quite as big and bustling as like a New York City or an L.A. So it's kind of that, oh, I don't know, it's, it's not a, like if we're, if we're going to say that New York and L.A. are, are full-grown adults, like the 18-hour cities are in college, right? Like they're about there. They're pretty well established. They, they know what's going on. Um, that, and they're, and they're definitely having fun. I mean, our closing time is two o'clock. So that's why you know, the, bar, <laughs> yeah. the bar shut down at two. I know the clubs go all night in New York, but that's we're not right. there yet. Gosh. Yeah. It, it'll be nice to be able to go back out to the bars until two <laughs> at some point, uh, local market perspective, investor demand. It is ranked 3.72 out of five, uh, which is pretty good. It looks like that puts it probably in the top 20. Um, again, ahead of Charleston, San Diego, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Brooklyn, um, but you know, significantly further behind Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Nashville, um, which are ranked one, two, and three respectively. In terms of development and redevelopment opportunities, it is a 3.64 out of five. So they are crushing it there. They're almost in the top 10. Um, I wonder why they have significant development or redevelopment opportunities, but their home building is low. I mean, to me, that would mean that, that their commercial real estate prospects are pretty high um, because you've got a lot of companies that are moving there. I know that they have a lot of tech companies that are moving into Salt Lake City. Um, I think they're calling it the Silicon, the Silicon Slopes. Um, so you've got Silicon Valley and then Silicon Slopes. Um, Salt Lake City is just, it's, I mean, it's really cool. We'll talk about it here in a minute, but you know, you've got the modern city, you've got all of the outdoor amenities you could ever want, um, and at any time of the year. So multifamily property buy, hold and sell recommendations. Salt Lake City is number three on the list for buy. So 67% of groups are buying 27% are holding. That means only 6% of multifamily properties uh, in the area are being sold, which means they've got one of the tightest markets in the country for multifamily. It's uh, not nearly as bad as Tampa, St. Petersburg, um, or Nashville, but it's pretty close. For office, it looks like it's number one on the list for buy. 45% are buying, 52% are holding, which is also one of the largest groups. 
um, and only 3% are selling. See, that's really interesting to me. I mean, that, that shows you right there that they have a number of corporate relocations coming into the city because um, if they didn't, there's, I mean, the office market would be struggling. Um, just like, you know, it probably is in California, New York, some of the other spots. For retail, they are number four on the list with 25% buying, 43% holding, and 32% selling. So retail, you know, obviously, that, I mean, that if you look, if you're able to see this list, if you're watching live with us and you're not listening on the podcast, you can actually see that, you know, this is pretty, I mean, it, almost all of these are, are, are pretty close to the same sell uh, ratio. I mean, within, you know, give or take, I mean, obviously, Tucson is going to be at 30%, which seems to be one of the lower on the list. And the highest is uh, Fort Myers, Naples, which is 47%. So, I mean, there's not a huge swing between those two, right? Um, it looks like the, the, the big difference is whether you're buying or holding. And uh, holding seems to be pretty steady, too. So, it's pretty interesting. But, yeah, 25% are buying, 43% um, are holding, and 32% selling. Gosh, it's so high. Local public and private investment, it is number five on the list with a 3.60 out of five, just behind Denver, Austin, Charlotte, and Dallas-Fort Worth. So that's pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of money that wants to get into that city. So if you're trying to raise capital for deals or put together debt, um, well, that's the next one. It's actually further on down on the list in debt, but it's actually still ranked out of five. It's a 3.64. So about the same. I mean, if you are looking to put together debt and equity for your deals, I mean, Salt Lake City is a pretty good opportunity there. All right. And local economy, it looks like it's almost a top 10, 3.68 out of 5. Got to love it. Andy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Tyler, kind of just as you said, I think the most important highlight to take away is that the office section where literally, what, 0% of people are selling – that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. And the worst office market we've had probably in the last 50 years, 0% of people are selling. <laughs> people investing in office in Salt Lake are going to do really well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, with, with the development prospects out there, uh, it's going to take it a while for development to catch up to the office space market. Um, but I mean, look at Nashville. Nashville has had the largest pipeline of office under construction in the country in terms of like in, relative to its size. Uh, yet we've also maintained one of the lowest vacancy rates. It looks like the same thing is coming for Salt Lake City. So this article is coming from the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, why Salt Lake City has the hottest job market in the U.S. The Wall Street Journal reports its job market is growing faster than any metropolitan areas in the country. Here is why. That's really fascinating to me. I would not have thought about that before we read this, but it, I mean, it really makes sense. So it talks about how Illinois, New York, and New Jersey uh, have the highest outbound rates, uh, which means the most amount of people that are leaving. Idaho, Arizona, Tennessee, South Carolina, and North Carolina had the highest inbound rates. Um, but when it comes to the country's hottest job market, you're not going to find it in the top inbound states, uh, which is pretty interesting. Salt Lake City has top-notch ski resorts, challenging bike trails, and breathtaking views of the Wasatch Mountains. It is also home to the hottest job market in the U.S. 
Uh, let's see. As the pandemic raged through the U.S. in 2020, no metropolitan area in the country expanded the size of its labor force more on a percentage of basis on a percentage basis than Utah's capital, Salt Lake City. It also had the lowest average unemployment rate and the highest share of people working or looking for jobs. That's remarkable. I mean, that that just tells you that they have a very diverse, uh, well balanced set of, of companies, uh, businesses. I mean, that's Nashville's very similar. Uh, Nashville made it through 2008 fairly unscathed compared to some other cities, um, as well as 2020 because of that. When you have a balanced workforce, it just, you know, you're not too dependent on any one type of, of, of worker. Let's see. the So what made it so attractive? Salt Lake City rose to the top thanks to fewer business shutdowns more moderate health consequences from COVID-19, and a young and well-educated population that supported a tech sector that was already on fire before the pandemic began. So, I mean, that's pretty good, right? Like, if you are if you own a tech company despite government shutdowns, you were probably still able to open and operate at near full capacity, um, depending on what your customers were, were needing, right? So even if people were having to work from home, um, it didn't really impact a whole lot of what you were trying to do. Let's see... Open states have much lower rates of unemployment than states that relied on strict lockdowns. That's, I mean, obviously no surprise there. Utah's 3% unemployment ranked, uh, rate ranked better than 48 other states behind only South Dakota. Interesting. So South Dakota, very low unemployment rate. Um, Salt Lake City metro area boasts a population of 1.2 million residents compared to the 265,000 in Sioux Falls. So, even if Sioux Falls was growing faster, it would not have qualified in the journal's rankings. That's pretty cool. While highest unemployment was Hawaii at 9.2%, one in almost every 10 people in Hawaii was unemployed. Can you imagine? Uh, let's see here. That's the travel market being down, Tyler. That's and it. That, that's what we're, we're seeing across the board, too. You know, when you're in... And it also was New York. Uh, you know, a lot of these higher-end travel-focused markets are, are doing poorly. And if you have a strong, diversified economy like Salt Lake City, like a Nashville, you're going to be doing a lot better. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, uh, you're right. Hawaii relies so heavily on tourism that, of course, uh, it's going to be really tough to do anything like, like that with that. Um, it's all vital living with Imani, uh, just jumped in. Hello. Hey, Hey, Imani, how you doing? Thanks for joining I us. Bet, I bet that's idle, vital, right? Idle, vital, I don't know. idle, vital living to ride <laughs> to me. Yeah, I probably should have got that one. Um, the vote on the lockdown is over. So it looks like, you know, we're still grappling with the consequences of the lockdowns. Um, which with every passing day looks like a poor bargain. Yet the beauty and strength of the American system is that it was built with numerous checks and balances on centralized power, one of which is federalism. Uh, That's a pretty interesting take. So because of this decentralized system, states were able to navigate the pandemic in different ways, and Americans were allowed to vote with their feet, which they did. They really voted with their feet. Uh, And they they relocated to areas better suited to their needs and preferences. Very interesting. The more decentralized political power is, the more issues citizens will be able to design through foot voting as opposed to ballot box voting. 
Yeah. Look, if you don't like, I mean, that's what happened in California. A lot of people didn't agree with the shutdowns. They didn't appreciate it. And so they left. They moved out. I mean, people were already leaving California before, but the 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 migration out of that state um, over the last year has just been remarkable. And Americans voted. Here, yeah, go ahead. Yes, Tyler. I was just going to say quickly about voting with your feet. The thing to note here, Tyler, about the migration patterns that we've seen for the through the COVID crisis is that, you know, the people who are moving are obviously you know, the white collar workers, the wealthy workers, people who can work remotely and say, yeah, I can go out and leave California to go to move to Salt Lake City, right? So part of the reason too, you're seeing such high growth and the crazy housing markets in all these places is because the people coming in, and we know this, this is a K-shaped recovery in the, in the economy, right? You know, the people who are doing okay, doing well before are doing even better sometimes. And the people who are doing poorly before are, are suffering. And so that is something that, you know, shouldn't be overlooked here. It's not just like everyone who may have been able to disagree with the policies that who just left, you know, but at the end of the day, it was people who have a lot of money who are affluent, generally white collar workers. And those are the people who have massively moved and massively shifted. And that's what's driving, you know, the, the such high demand because it, almost everyone coming in are these high end yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that would make a uh, that that would cause a massive shift, wouldn't it? Um, Imani jumped back in. Just watched a video about renting a commercial property that was very informative, and now I caught a live. Awesome. Yeah, glad you liked it, Imani. Uh, let us know in the chat which video it was. I'm, I'm curious to see. But uh, yeah, we're doing these lives every almost every day now. Feels like we're doing um, the commercial real estate investor weekly update which is basically a commercial real estate news show every monday at 5 30 p.m central standard uh, tuesdays we're doing an interview same time 5 30 p.m central standard um, or andy and i are just diving into a topic and covering something that we feel like talking about that week wednesdays probably not this wednesday we won't be live it'll be a pre-recorded show because we're going to be in chattanooga um all day because uh, you know we bought bought a property out there so uh, we'll probably pre-record that, but we're going to start doing live underwriting sessions so that we can show you guys, you know, what projects, uh, you know, some properties that we think are maybe worth investing in and also how we go about underwriting them uh, so that you can kind of see that process too. So yeah, Thursdays we release educational videos and Fridays we're doing vlogs. So uh, definitely subscribe to the channel and, and keep watching. All right. Are Californians to blame for Utah's surging home prices? This comes from KSL.com. I thought this one was an interesting take because, um, you know, everybody, I feel like everyone is blaming Californians for rising prices, right? And if, uh, like, it's it's common in Nashville, everybody says, oh, yeah, you know, the Californians will pay that, but Nashvilleians won't. And they say the same thing in Austin because, you know, I used to go down there four or five times a year before the pandemic hit. But, um, you know, it's a common story heard throughout Utah's housing industry. Californians are arriving with plenty of cash in hand, outbidding local home buyers, and driving up the cost of housing. But an analysis by the Utah Foundation finds that it does not seem to be the reason for steep increases in home and rental prices. This, uh, this actually makes a lot of sense when I tell you what it's going to be. The rate of people moving into Utah's larger metropolitan areas is actually down. So there aren't more people moving in than before causing this to, to rise. They're saying the increase in demand is actually due in part to fewer residents than normal leaving. 
So it's not the it's not a problem of too many people coming to the city. It's actually too few people leaving. So there's not as many houses coming on the market. There's not as much availability going on, which means anything that is going to be on the market is going to go for a higher price. It's supply and demand. So uh, I thought that that was a pretty interesting take. When we're looking at the states where the most people are moving, it turns out Utah isn't one of the top 10, but most of their neighbors are. So it's not even, uh, I mean, that's just interesting. Uh, The Salt Lake metro area bucked the national trend. It saw the fifth highest growth per 100,000 people out of nearly 100 cities. But is it Californians? Not likely. Interesting to see that people stopped leaving the Salt Lake metro area at the same rate they had over the previous years. It's kind of functionally the same thing as if we had a big surge of people moving in. Uh, Yeah, like, I mean, that pretty much covers the whole story, right? You can't, nothing's coming on the market, so there's nothing to buy. Um, They're basically saying what I said earlier. We love to blame California for a lot of things, which, you know, it probably is not fair to Californians. Uh, but in this situation, in, migra- in migration of California residents to Utah is definitely happening, but it's only part of the reason that housing is increasing in price. So, let's see. The moving co- oh, This is an interesting stat. The moving company Atlas classified Utah as an inbound state for the first time since 1995. 16 years. And changed, I'm sorry, 26 years. And changed California to an outbound state for the first time since 1995. Pretty interesting to see that flip-flop at the same time. Yeah, and Tyler, I wanted to throw this one in here because I thought it was interesting to bring up this point, too, is that not only are a lot of these cities growing and attracting a lot of people, the the cities we've talked about, the Nashville's, Charlotte's, Austin's of the world, but likely, as this article pointed out, uh, an underreported factor, because I haven't heard about that much in Nashville, but I bet it's happening here too, where we have kids who otherwise maybe 20 years ago would have moved out now are deciding to stay, right? I think that happened anecdotally probably with me, you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of my friends growing up, you know, because I wanted to be in real estate and people were saying, Andy, are, don't you want to get out of Nashville? And I said, if I want to be in real estate, why would I leave to go anywhere else into one of you know the best markets in the country, right? And that wasn't the case, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and uh, but it is now. So you know, I bet that's a factor really strongly affecting a lot of these other places as well. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, when I uh, when I got back from college, most of my friends over the next couple of years did not decide to move back they stayed away from Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was kind of around that 2015 time. So it was, a, it was a bit of a different time. I would imagine most people now are choosing to stay in this city because it is such a, a cool place to be. And the same thing is happening in Salt Lake. I, I just had a, a really good buddy of mine who's a, uh, he's been a friend of mine since middle school, move, move out to Salt Lake from Nashville uh, because it's, it, it's, he got to go experience something different in a city that's also up and coming, which is pretty cool. So that's it for Market Watch. Keep an eye on Salt Lake City. If you're looking to invest out west, it's probably a pretty good bet for you. Now for the future of commercial real estate. So these are the articles that we think are going to impact the world of commercial real estate as we think it, as we see it, as we believe it. So we'll start first with one article on 
the impact of COVID on CMBS assumptions. So this is coming at you from globestreet.com. COVID has introduced new questions into the process when a buyer assumes an existing loan. So CMBS works because of the locked out nature of the underlying loans. The ultimate investors in CMBS are able to rely on a certain return on its investments for performing loans and therefore pay a higher price than a bond with uncertain returns. Kind of that risk reward, right? So uh, let's see, most CMBS documents require, a, require the loan to be defeased or the loan to be assumed. Um, so it's very prohibitive to pay off a CMBS loan ahead of its term. Um, that, you know, that's you know, the prepayment penalties, all that kind of stuff. That's basically what this is getting at. Defeasance provides a way for the current owner to sell the property and yet pay the CMBS investors the same amount of return as if the loan were in place. So they get, you can pay off your loan, but you've got to give the investors the return that they would have gotten had you continued paying it for the entire time. Um, which, you know, it can make it too expensive for most, uh, you know, I guess, uh, mortgagees um, to take that option. So you've, you've basically got to go through the loan um, until a certain extent. So one of the questions they ask here is what happens when the purchase price of the property is equal to 100% of the loan? Does the buyer have to pay the loan down? Uh, well, because of the because of the locked out nature of CMBS loans, they cannot be prepaid, either fully or partially. So a pay down of the loan is not allowed, um, which is interesting. That makes it a relatively unattractive loan, but uh, also they can be, they're attractive in other ways, right? So let's see, pre-COVID, most uh, services required an LTP reserve, uh, which required the buyer to deposit with the servicer a reserve intended to maintain the same LTV loan to value at the origination of the loan. As an example, if the loan to value at origination was 65% and then at the sale of the property, the loan to value was 75%, the servicer required a 10% reserve, which served only as additional collateral for that loan. The funds could, the funds could never be touched during the life of the loan. So imagine having to put money into a bank account that does not get you a return and you cannot touch it for as long as you have that loan. It's just, it's tough. So, well, well, here we go. The following sentence, this requirement had the net effect of killing many sales. Of course it did. I mean, if you told me I had to put 10% down into a bank account I couldn't touch and could not get a return on. I mean, think about that. If you're an investor and you're raising capital, you're putting equity into a deal, that's 10% that you've got to pay a return on that you are not able to put in play. That, that's tough. Um, let's see what happens to all those past payments that were deferred or not paid during COVID. Does the buyer also assume the forbearance or modification terms granted during COVID? All buyers need to know the answers before following questions uh, for the following questions before deciding to purchase a COVID impaired property. So obviously CMBS loans can be assumed and that is, uh, there's, there's some potential there because of, uh, of COVID that these loans will be coming out of the market, uh, to trade because, you know, some banks won't want to deal with loans that are in default. So did the current owner get a forbearance or modification of the loan during COVID? We, we actually had a bunch of our lenders call us on all of our properties and ask if we wanted to go through forbearance. And we said, no, uh, we, we just gritted and bared it and hoped for the best. And, and it actually worked out really fine. Everything, we, 
we didn't miss a beat. But I, I, I had a feeling that something like this would come back and haunt everybody that did decide to take forbearance. Look at that. Did the current owner get a forbearance? I mean, if, if banks are going to be asking that, then um, they're going to throw you into a pile of people that got forbearance, which means they're, they don't know if you're going to be able to pay stuff. Um, if the owner did get a forbearance or modification, is the agreement assumable or does the loan revert to the original terms at the time of assumption? Are there deferred amounts that become due and payable at the time of assumption? Are there conditional waivers of fees that become due and payable at another event of default in the future? Uh, buyers would not want to learn about that later. So there's a bunch of questions that you would want to ask if you're looking at getting into buying CMBS loans. And uh, I mean, it, it goes pretty deep into that, um, into, you know, the special servicing of CMBS loans and all of that stuff. But I mean, Andy, what, what do you have to say on, on the future of CMBS loans and, and, and the opportunity that may be there uh, in the near future considering COVID? It's kind of exactly as you highlighted, Tyler, as this article stated that essentially TLDR, there is there used to be a rule that made it really hard to assume these loans, and now they kind of made it easier to do so. This is also in because we had an article a couple of weeks ago, I believe, that talked about CMBS loans specifically and how this is really the only sector of the real estate market that is in distress. People have been expecting, oh, you know, XYZ, there's going to XYZ properties are going to come onto the market, you know, all the office buildings, all the retail buildings, I'm going to be able to buy them at like 25, 50% discount, like people did in 2009, didn't happen, right? And it's not happening, because there's so much money on the sidelines trying to buy these properties up. Really, the only sectors that are really in distress are the CMBS sectors, likely because if anyone trying to buy it had those previous restrictions on it. So now these restrictions are are much less. So this is this is one of the opportunities where if you can figure it out and you can get in front of these people, you might have an opportunity to you know, make a good deal, find a find an off-market property, find a property that is uh, undervalued. There you have it. All right, moving on to another one from Yahoo Finance. Blackstone joins in risky commercial property CLO swell, sales swell. Interesting. So sales are once again booming for a growing corner of the bond market used to finance risky real estate properties in transition despite a performance slump threatening some prior deals. Known as commercial real estate collateralized loan obligations, the complex bonds are a niche financing tool dusted off from before the great financial crisis. After issuance plummeted more than 50% in 2020 as coronavirus restrictions mushroomed, this year's pace has doubled that of the same period in 2019, the sector's best post-crisis year. It's pretty interesting uh, to see what the pandemic uh, basically sparked because uh, we were talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago about um, companies that are, are basically doing a, a what was that IPO called Andy where the company goes public without actually having to trade like SPAC. go public SPAC. Yeah. it's SPACs which you know haven't been used in a long time or they weren't very popular because of the, of, of the pandemic now everybody's doing a SPAC um, it, it seems like basically the same thing here 
A variety of Wall Street firms are now rushing to the market to get in on growing investor demand for the product, which offers higher yield than many other bonds and benefits from an expected economic recovery. Blackstone is marketing a $1 billion CRE CLO, and companies such as TPG Capital, Ready Capital Corp., and Benefit Street Partners are among those that accessed the market in March. That's pretty interesting. So right now, I mean, considering the interest rate environment and the fact that we have had such high demand for commercial real estate over the last 10 years, it means that yields have dropped significantly. So at this point, groups are chasing any higher yield that they possibly can, which is, all, which is what's driving demand for this type of product, right? I mean, you're looking at cap rates in some markets on multifamily that are sub 4%. Basically, you're you're almost not even keeping up with inflation, right? I mean, it's 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 crazy to see what some of these properties are, are trading for. So, of course, they're looking at you know alternate um, alternate investments. Let's see. Properties packaged into CRE CLOs don't qualify for inclusion in more traditional property financings, such as commercial mortgage-backed securities (CMBS) because they are being refurbished or are otherwise in a state of transition. Projects may include an empty office tower undergoing renovations and waiting for new tenants, or a suburban mall being retrofitted and may offer yields as much as the high single digits. Wow, that's actually really high. High single digits. Um, I I mean, it makes sense. I mean, look, you've got to be able to get loans uh, for those types of projects, which are, you know, they're heavy value add. Uh, but they're also a little more risky uh, than, than your, and when I say a little more, they're definitely more risky than your average, like, stabilized office or retail asset. They just are. I mean, a, a suburban mall being retrofitted, of course, that's a risky uh, endeavor. But if, you, if you've got a good development partner, you've got a good investment partner, you can pull that off. However, most banks are not willing to take uh, the risk for, uh, you know, a low single-digit yield. Um, they'll want high. So let's see here. This is another one from Globe Street. Investors rush to manufactured housing and other alternatives. So manufactured housing communities are poised to be an investor standout in 2021 as investors look to alternative assets to generate higher risk adjusted long term returns and to diversify their portfolios. Looks like we're locked out of this article. Uh, but a, news, a new report from JLL's Capital Markets Group notes that transaction volume for manufactured housing communities increased 32.2% between 2019 and 2020, from $3.2 billion to $4.2 billion, and valuations are increasing. Zoning restrictions and core development expansion have constrained, I would imagine it's constrained the growth. I mean, look at Nashville, nobody wants to approve more uh, manufactured housing. But the problem is, Manufactured housing nowadays just is not, uh, it's not what it used to be. Um, you know, everybody has such a, a bad impression of what manufactured housing could be. And you look at, you know, these shipping container homes and, and, and the, the new modular construction that's being created within these factories. Honestly, it's better quality than some of the stuff that I've seen going up in Nashville. Right. And so it's, it's, it's almost this, um, it's just a, like basically a historical discrimination against that building type, which I think that we will see start to shift and change 
um, over the next few years because you can build it for the same price, if not cheaper, and you can build it way faster. And imagine how like much higher quality these buildings would be if you have manufacturing processes in place instead of just hoping you know some subs uh, got things right when they were on site. Right. Andy, what are your thoughts on manufactured housing and, and, and investors moving into these alternative asset classes? I mean, Tyler, it's kind of just the chase for yields anywhere. The, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the reason why all these alternative asset classes are coming up is because it is hard to find yields in traditional assets right now. And you've got to be looking at the more innovative, the cutting edge stuff, the stuff that people have traditionally forgotten about. Some of these include you know, these older manufactured housing parks or mobile home parks, you know, and people are trying to starting to treat them. Hey, you know, used, used to be these were owned mostly by mom and pop landlords and they maybe didn't run it very well. Well, what if we go in and we run them with, you know, a better quality property management system now and we actually turn it into a rental asset. That's why we were talking about how they're viewing single family homes as an institutional level investment now. It's the same sort of thing. Things that people, investors used to never touch, now they want it because they can't make their money anywhere else. Wherever the big money is going, that's where you're gonna see outsized gains as well, right? You kind of want to be ahead of the trend of the big money if you're the small guy, right? And that's how you can make a lot of money in, in something like manufactured housing, for example. Yeah, and, and looks, these subclasses are not the only alternative asset that you can pay attention to. I mean, look at tertiary cities, right? I mean, that's that's why we keep talking about Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's why, you know, Huntsville, Alabama has one of the, the best multifamily development markets in the country. Um, you, you're able to chase these higher yields because your acquisition prices are lower. It's easier to find deals. It's I mean, the people are moving there and there's demand for it. There's just nothing that's really being built. And so that's why tertiary markets are becoming so popular. All right, moving on to private equity deal dive. So this week, we've got a couple of very interesting deals coming at you. And one that is probably one of the biggest private equity deals, one of the biggest mergers uh, going on in the world of commercial real estate. Redfin completes acquisition of RentPath for $608 million. Acquisition brings together a leading site for home buying with leading sites for rental listings. So basically, Redfin is now completely competing with Zillow. They were already competing with them on sales, but now they have all of these rental listings. They partnered up with, uh, you know, I think RentPath really focused on property management companies. So that's taking on a almost a, a different kind of customer, um, which is really interesting. Redfin is a tech-powered real estate brokerage that operates a real estate search site and provides a suite of services to make the process of buying and selling a home faster, better, and less expensive. For years, they've been talking about basically how they can get rid of residential agents. That's, that's what Redfin wants to do. They want to be your go-to residential agent. Um, by not being a residential agent, really. Uh, RentPath operates leading rental sites, including apartmentguide.com, rent.com, rentals.com. Those are three huge websites. 
Combined with RentPath, Redfin can now be a destination for all North American consumers looking for a home. Which, look, home rentals is is on the rise. I mean, you've got all of these REITs, hedge funds, uh, private equity firms that are investing exclusively in uh, homes for rent. Let's see here. A deal that was expected to take 90 days was approved and closed in 42. That's pretty amazing. That's actually really, really fast for a $608 million deal. Um, let's see. RentPath has modern technology for importing rental listings, uh, which fits uh, Redfin pretty well. It's pretty cool. Uh, looks like RentPath's websites draw 16 million visitors every month, uh, and that will continue to operate. So it looks like they will keep the two companies separate, but they're also going to immediately start integrating them um, through some engineering. I would imagine they're going to bring them both onto the same platform at some point, but keep them kind of separated. Let's see. I mean, that's pretty much it. That's uh, that's a big deal. I mean, $608 million um, for that, for the, that company. And now Redfin has not only sales, but also rentals. I mean, they're, they're now a behemoth. I mean, they were already a behemoth in the market. They were growing behemoth. Now they're, they might be the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Um, you know, their offerings could, you know, really give Zillow a run for their money. Andy, what are your thoughts on the, on the Zillow versus Redfin rivalry we've got now? I mean, Zillow, I was speaking of keeping the company separate, right? Zillow bought Trulia way back in the day. Trulia used to be an early competitor to Zillow. They technically have their website separate, but all their data is integrated. Redfin's going to do the same thing. They apparently are going to integrate that data by 2022, so by next year. So these these big property groups, guys, in real estate, these tech companies, they're going to continue to rise. Do not expect it to stop anytime soon with Zillow doing home buying instant offers and Redfin looking to do the same thing at some point as well. You know, the residential market is is really going to become commoditized. It's going to become more yeah. and more like a traditional, quote unquote, what people consider traditional, as in the Wall Street guys consider traditional stocks and bonds and options and that kind of stuff. It's going to become more and more like that, where you can make a sale happen in 30 days guaranteed because some big company is going to buy it, you know, and what, whether that's for better or for worse, it's, it's yet to be yet to be seen, but it's going to happen. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to watch. You know, you look at um, a market like Australia um, and they are almost the opposite of America in terms of renting versus owning homes. Right. I mean, America, it's like the majority of Americans own their home versus rent. And in Australia, I want to say it's like 70% rent compared to 30% home ownership. And it's, it's a really, really tough market to buy a house because of that. Um, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see, see what happens there. I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of benefits to, to renting um, homes over, over buying them. But, you know, I think, uh, I think real estate moving further and further into the tech sector like this just makes sense. Uh, you know, once you have all that data, you know, that's that's the toughest part is figuring out how to aggregate aggregate all of the data. Once you've got that, though, it's you're off to the races. 
Uh, hey, for everybody joining us live, uh, if you've got any questions on any topics that we are talking about or anything that we haven't talked about, and you just have questions in general on commercial real estate, feel free to drop those in the live chat. We'll be sure to get around to you. Moving on to, the, to an article from BizNow, CoStar, to look at new sectors for next acquisitions after failed deals and FTC scrutiny. CoStar Group has become a $32 billion commercial real estate data giant in large part through acquisitions, but that strategy has started to hit some obstacles. Over the last three months, CoStar has had two rare examples of high-profile acquisition pursuits falling through. One of the deals, its agreed-upon acquisition of RentPath, which we were just talking about, was blocked by a federal government antitrust lawsuit, while the second largest, while the second acquisition target, CoreLogic, publicly turned down CoStar's $6.9 billion offer. Good for them. The failure to complete these acquisitions, <laughs> Andy knows my feelings on CoStar, but you know, just about every broker, I think, has the same uh, feeling. They're, they're, they're just the biggest operator. you got to put up with them, right? Uh, it not only cost CoStar the time and money it spent working on the deals, it has exposed potential risks in its plan to grow for which it has set aside billions to make new acquisitions. So one thing that this article hasn't said yet is that CoStar grows either through acquisitions or through suing its competitors until they no longer exist. So they're, they're not just um, going out and making these acquisitions. They'll, they then you know go out and pursue uh, that, that other company's clients to bring them on because there's no one else to use. CoStar faces the risk of additional FTC actions if it tries to buy companies in commercial real estate data and apartment listings where it is already dominant. And that risk could be compounded by the federal government pursuing a more aggressive antitrust approach under Democratic control. I mean, I think they should. I, I think com the, com the, the industry uh, for data in commercial real estate has it's, – it's almost monopolized – it's tough. Uh, I mean, we brought all of our listings in house and decided not to use any of the of the uh, you know third party companies because they basically all they they want you to pay to get your own data back, which just doesn't make any sense to me. And so I think that that's why it's so easy for companies like uh, Redfin and RentPath to just absolutely dominate the residential market because the the culture, the atmosphere in residential is totally different. Everybody uses the MLS. Everybody, you know, posts up publicly. They're willing to share their data. Commercial real estate is the exact opposite. Nobody wants to share anything with you. They don't want to tell you what prices they're getting. They don't, I mean, for, for good reason, right? I mean, it keeps, um, it keeps the industry competitive, uh, but it also ensures that we're all going to continue to have jobs, right? And, and also, I mean, it's, it's much more nuanced. It, commercial real estate is far more complex, uh, just because every deal really is different. Um, where CoStar is looking to grow into a new sector with less antitrust risk, such as the CoreLogic proposal, it faces the risk of founders not wanting to be acquired by the industry giant. Imagine that. And it also faces the risk of upsetting its brokerage clients. It's already doing that. Who rely on its data to function uh, if it pursues acquisition targets that they view as competitors. Interesting. Um, so I mean, Tyler, one of the big reasons, uh, as, as maybe you were about to say, one of the big reasons CoStar was blocked from acquiring RentPath is that they already own apartments.com. So if, if RentPath being kind of the number two conglomerate of rental listings, 
and CoStar already owns apartments.com. And so CoStar just owns all of the apartment, you know, for rent listings out there in the entire world. I mean, what a nightmare that would be for anyone looking to just even find out information about renting anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it basically wouldn't be possible. And you think about it. I mean, it's like the East India Trading Company, right? Like they would literally have a monopoly on on that data, which is never good for the, for for the public. Let's see. Um, in an interview Monday, CoStar CEO Andy Florence told BizNow he will continue to seek out new acquisitions as part of the company's growth strategy, and he said there are many corners of PropTech where CoStar hasn't yet yet built a presence. Interesting, giving it the ability to buy companies with less antitrust risk. It's interesting to me that, that, that like that's their growth strategy is to just buy companies that are doing it um, instead of building it themselves. But I mean, I guess it makes sense once you get that get that large. Um, acquisitions have been a driving force behind CoStar's growth over the last ten years. LoopNet, Apartments.com, companies that CoStar acquired in 2012 and 2014, respectively now bring in significant portions of its revenue. CoStar has acquired more than 30 companies since its 1987 founding, including three deals that closed last year. The company has more than $3 billion in cash on hand and has said it plans to continue pursuing major acquisition deals this year to bolster its growth. Stock price as of Tuesday morning stood at 8.43 a share, down from its February peak, but still roughly 44% higher than where it stood one year ago. Revenues rose 19% as the commercial real estate industry shifted towards online services during the coronavirus pandemic, continuing a rapid pace of growth for the company. Yeah, this is, it's pretty interesting. I mean, we could, we could keep diving into this all day. Um, Andy, is there anything else that you want to touch touch on in, in this article? Not really. We pretty much covered everything we need to talk about CoStar. We're giving them enough. Time. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I figured. All right, moving on. Here's an article from Statista.com. Um, <laughs> just going back. I mean, hey, look, when Andy when Andy uh, pulled up this article, um, the CoStar article to talk about, he he knows how I feel about them. He was like, well, at least it's uh, it's highlighting some not so good news for CoStar. It's like, you know what? Let's talk about it. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, Statista.com, U.S. Residential Rental Market Statistics and Facts. This is pretty interesting. So there are many advantages to renting a home rather than purchasing one. Um, And in recent years, the United States rental market has seen an increase in demand for apartment and house rentals. We were just talking about this. Although renting is seen as an affordable alternative to purchasing a home, renting in major cities has become increasingly expensive. Finding a suitable rental has become a major challenge for many people living and working in major cities. It's crazy to think about how much uh, rent has gone up just in Nashville alone. I mean, I remember, you know, just, uh, I guess, five, seven years ago, which I mean, you know, it's a long time ago now, but five or seven years ago, you could find a a nice one-bedroom, like a nice one-bedroom apartment for like $800 to $1,000 a month, and now, you know, you're looking at $1,300 to $1,500 a month, which, again, is not a huge increase, but when you're talking about nearly doubling the price in five to seven years, depending on what kind of product you're looking at, that's, that's high. So it, it is expensive. Um, and we've talked about this before, but largely the reason that it's becoming so expensive is because of construction costs. 
they have to they almost have to get these rents in order to justify building them because construction materials and labor are so high the monthly median asking rent for an unfurnished apartment in the united states increased by nearly 50 percent since 2008 okay so that's almost exactly what i was just saying as a result, between 38 and 54% of renter households are considered to be either moderately or severely cost burdened. As of February 2021, the average rent of a two-bedroom apartment was $1,100 U.S. dollars. Nevertheless, some states, such as Hawaii, California, and the District of Columbia, had average rents much higher than the national average. Gosh, Hawaii was $1,900 on average. Can you imagine? That's so high. $1,900. I mean, you combine that with a 9.2% unemployment rate in COVID, I can't imagine how Hawaii's been going through all of this. The majority of American renters live in single-family homes, followed by structures with five or more units, such as apartment buildings. Multifamily housing units, apartments, townhouses, condos, to name a few, are gaining in popularity, especially in urban areas where space is limited. In 2019, almost half of U.S. renters were under the age of 30. I mean, look, it's, you know, people under the age of 30 aren't making enough money to for us to be able to go buy houses. Um, and also, most of us don't want to. There's so many benefits to not buying a house. Um, you get the flexibility. You get less responsibility, which is nice. If something breaks, I can call my landlord and tell them to take care of it. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, it's just it's just more affordable. Honestly, in the last decade, there's been a downward trend in rental vacancy rates, decreasing from approximately 40 percent in 2009 to just under 25 percent in 2019, reflecting the increasing demand for rental units. This scarcity could partially explain the rapidly increasing rental costs. The average monthly the average monthly apartment rent has been steadily rising over the past few years. So there's some pretty cool data right here. Three bedroom apartment, twelve hundred eighty four dollars. Monthly three-bedroom apartment rent in California is $2,070. Honestly, that's cheaper than I would have thought on average for California. But well, that's the whole state, including yeah, you know, the northern Including all the rural rural areas. But still, I mean, I still feel like that's, that's low. Yeah, I mean, look, the residential market is just going to continue to rise in, in cost. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons that we harp on micro units so much. It, my, micro units provide attainability. Um, despite rising costs, right? I mean, you know, when you're looking at a 400 square foot unit and it's, you know, $3 a foot, which is about twice the average in Nashville, you're still paying 1200 bucks a month, right? So, I mean, yeah, look, 400, 400 square feet might be small, but you'll have some pretty sweet amenities. You'll probably be able to walk somewhere pretty cool and you'll be able to like, keep your costs low. Um, I mean, I think I think the residential market is is really shifting that way. So, cool. All right, well, let's move on. This is another one from BizNow. Money pouring into climate prop tech as real estate is pushed towards sustainability. Actually, this is going to be in the next section. Let's go ahead and do that. Prop tech. All right, <laughs> let's dive on into this one. Money pouring into climate prop tech as real estate is pushed towards sustainability. This is really cool. This is something that we've been talking about for quite some time now. And, uh, you know, we're Andy and I are big fans 
of green real estate, of tech forward real estate, we see it as a way to significantly increase your returns without really changing anything else, right? You start investing into uh, AI powered thermostats that you know control how much HVAC you're placing into a building. You just become more efficient, which means you save more money. So I'm, I'm all about it. VC firms this year have begun raising hundreds of millions of dollars that they plan to deploy into prop tech startups aimed at taking on climate change by making buildings more sustainable. It'll be interesting to see if they talk about LEED at all in this article, L-E-E-D. They've been really um, helping push forward some of, some of these initiatives for, for 20 years. Uh, the surge of investment taking place across the U.S., Canada, and Europe comes as experts see multiple coinciding forces that will push developers and landlords to adopt green building technologies in the coming years. So one of those is obviously going to be from President Joe Biden, who is, who is pushing uh, a lot on sustainability. Uh, but also it's coming from other shareholders. I mean, you've got lenders who want to see this. You have tenants tenants want to see this now whether they're businesses or or residents right i mean businesses want to see it because they want to be able to to look at their their overall portfolio or, or their overall footprint and to be able to say hey we have a less we have a, a lesser impact on our environment because we choose to you know operate out of these kinds of buildings um residents you know if you're going to live somewhere you also want to see that because it's just it's who we are becoming we you know a lot of the millennials and gen z genuinely care about the environment and want to do what they can and so uh that's of course going to start driving everything to be you know more climate friendly right you've got all these companies that are offering these you know climate initiatives green initiatives and so it's it's no surprise that that's coming to real estate as well if we're going to hit any of the dates out there like 2030 or 2050 to be carbon neutral, you need to be investing between $2 trillion and $5 trillion every year in retrofitting buildings with climate tech stuff. I like that. That's a very technical word, tech stuff, said Fifth Wall Ventures partner Greg Smithies, who leads the firm's new climate prop tech fund. This might be the largest venture capital opportunity in history. That's a big statement. This might be the largest venture capital opportunity in history, um, which makes sense, right? You think about you have this massive movement, this huge movement going on that has been going on for a while, and now you've got a lot of other REITs and hedge funds that are – they have funds that are literally set aside – to handle, uh, to just promote green prop tech, you know, technologies, uh, it's going to continue to, to just blow up. Um, also, I mean, look, it, they're, they're not just green initiatives, right? They also make the buildings more profitable, or they can. Um, there's plenty of ways to do that. So it's actually a great way of taking care of the environment and also making your portfolios more efficient. So why wouldn't people be doing that? Uh, Fifth Wall, the largest prop tech-focused VC firm, launched, launched a $200 million climate tech fund in February. Um, let's see. Gosh, there's a whole – I mean, the list goes on and on. 
London-based venture firm 2150, Toronto-based Greensoil PropTech Ventures. I mean, it just it keeps going. They're all raising these massive funds uh, to tackle PropTech in real estate. Uh, They're focusing specifically on green PropTech companies and are a part of a multi-billion dollar trend of major investors pouring money into the larger climate tech space. Investment in climate tech reached new highs in 2020 for both capital raised and deal volume. Bill Gates's breakthrough energy ventures in January announced it had raised a billion dollars for its second round of investments in green tech startups. Amazon announced in June $2 billion. I mean, it just keeps going. That's really interesting. I, didn't re- I mean, I, I knew that this was a, a massively, a massive and rapidly growing sector of the industry. I just didn't realize that all of these giants were jumping into it like they are. This is an interesting stat. Buildings and construction generate nearly 40% of global carbon emissions. Would not have thought that. Experts say that technologies that help reduce the real estate industry's carbon footprint are going to be a major focus for all green investment funds. This is creating billions of dollars in funding opportunities for prop tech startups that they can prove they have solutions to tackle this problem. Andy, I think we need to find some way to do a prop tech startup. <laughs> I agree, Tyler. Money's flowing into it. Let's go find it. Uh, Types of startups investors are focusing on range from short-term proven solutions that are ready to scale across the industry, such as systems that track building energy usage. That seems to be probably the most common one because it it just makes so much sense. Uh, To long-term technologies that could revolutionize construction by changing the way we produce concrete, steel, and materials that aren't yet commonly used. Uh, I would imagine one of those is 3D printing homes. We've been watching a lot of videos. We need to do something on that um, and, and like actually bring a video into this live stream and watch some, um, some of that going on because um, that would actually be really, really entertaining. But they, I mean, there's 3D printing machines that are literally printing homes out of concrete. It's really cool and crazy to watch. Um, and people are doing it, you know, so that, that those companies are getting a lot of money. I mean, could you imagine like driving past a neighborhood and just seeing a crane out there, like literally just going in sur- like around this house outline and you come back the next day and there's just a house there. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, Tyler. And for those of you who didn't catch, we had a wild card segment on 3d printing homes. I believe it was the second or third episode yep. of, of the CREI podcast. So if you guys are, wanting to hear or learn more about that. We covered it already, but I think you're exactly right, Tyler. I mean, things like this with, we're having 3D printed homes, they they mention things like materials we don't commonly use yet. I mean, there's there's they're making concrete out of hemp, hempcrete, yeah. if you've heard of that, which is, which is crazy. I mean, imagine <laughs> literally growing kind of marijuana's cousin and then you're building your, your homes and houses out of it. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to think all the things that hemp can be used for, right? Um, let's see. So the Biden's election paired with a narrowly Democratic Senate has led to a major shift in U.S. policy on climate change. With the nation rejoining the Paris Climate Accords and the president taking aggressive steps to fund sustainable infrastructure. Biden proposed a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that includes hundreds of billions of dollars to upgrade housing, schools, hospitals, and federal buildings. Imagine being able to go out and get one of those contracts. I mean, that could literally make your career. Um, so, of course, you know, plans still got to get passed. Uh, it's only proposed, probably going to get changed a whole lot, probably going to be a bunch of weird stuff that gets thrown into it. Um, but if it goes through, 
in any form or fashion, um, it'll be it'll be bad. Smithy said he thinks this proposed federal spending on infrastructure would be a massive accelerator for climate prop tech adoption. Of course it would be. You can go out and get a $50 million uh, you know, contract to go update these buildings. I mean, that alone would give a company enough uh, ability to go and scale off of, right? Uh, which, which, of course, is just going to catalyze uh, the amount of, of development going on in the world of prop, in prop tech. Let's see. Making existing buildings more efficient is a priority with billions attached to it, says Christian Hernandez Gallardo. Um, let's see. New York City passed a law in 2019 known as Local Law 97 that sets emissions limits on large and mid-sized buildings starting in 2024 and imposes fines on owners who exceed them. Pretty cool. I really like that, actually. That law is probably going to cost landlords in Manhattan around $10 billion per year in fines if they don't do anything about cleaning up their buildings. What's really worrying for U.S. landlords is most of the other big cities in America are going to just copy the same law. I know that that's kind of worrisome uh, for investors just to have another burden thrown on you, but it's kind of like COVID shutting down all businesses at the same time. Right. Like it's happening to everyone. And so if it's happening to everyone, then a solution will come out and the whole market is dealing with it. Right. So it's not like everybody's just going to go belly up overnight. Um, You know, of course, it's inconvenient, but I mean, find a way around it. In California, it's it's like we, we had that people talk about that all the time here in Nashville with sidewalks. Right. A few years ago, they 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 passed an ordinance that required developers to build sidewalks on their properties. And a lot of people got upset about it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, how are we going to fund this? Like, obviously, the people buying the home are going to have to pay for it. Well, yeah, of course they are. I mean, who cares? We we need sidewalks. I don't think that's that bad of an initiative. Um, At the end of the day, it's not a huge expense. So that's my thought on that. Let's see. Pretty much every client we have has asked us to study the implications of all electric buildings. And a few clients have elected to go that way. The regulatory field is rapidly changing. So the conversations we have are about preparing for a zero carbon future. I wonder what part of buildings specifically creates such a high carbon footprint. Do you think it's the HVAC? It's mostly the HVAC, Tyler. That's the biggest thing. When we're looking at building passive homes and green homes and all that kind of stuff, what they do is that they just make your they just essentially make really thick walls with a lot of insulation and you don't have to run very high HVAC. And that's 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 it at the end of the day. And uh, I think there's a quote here that that's about to pull out. I think this really drives home why you need to be looking at uh, green stuff, which is right here. This Smithy's quote. Uh, if you want to read it for us here, Tyler. Yeah, so people who have clean buildings have a cheaper cost of capital. That's the number one thing that's moving the adoption of green building technologies. Golly. I mean, that's it. At the end of the day, look, you don't have to you don't have to give a damn about saving the environment or, you know, preserving, you know, biodiversity and species for your kids or your for your grandchildren. You don't have to care at all. If you do green building initiatives, you will not only save money on your project, your project will likely be worth more. And because people want to loan to green buildings and they're willing to take a discount 
to their returns in order to do that. You can finance your building cheaper too. It's literally, if you're not doing it or you're not at least looking at it and thinking about it, you've got to be crazy at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's so true. You can get, you can finance it cheaper and you can probably sell it for a lower cap rate. So that's how you really get your spread on doing that. I mean, one, you're doing a great thing that, that should be going on anyway, that just makes it, I mean, there's technology that just makes running a building more efficient, like sensor technology that shows you exactly where the problems in the building are so that you don't have to send out a maintenance man for hours trying to find out where the exact issue is. Uh, but also, it's better for the environment. And if you're able to make more money doing it, it's just, it's a no-brainer. I think there's an awakening to just how much real estate impacts the climate and how much these emissions these buildings have in them. Uh, Connor said, let's see, he must be one of the guys that was talking earlier on in the article. Uh, and there's a sensitivity from the end user, whether the employees themselves or employers, to say, are we doing the right things for the community and the planet? I love that that's becoming such a, a, a thought in the forefront of people's minds. Uh, that people are really starting to focus on making buildings green. I would not have thought that, I mean, again, I, I feel like I say this about a lot of the articles that we read, and I think that's kind of why, selfishly, why I do this show. But doing the studying and, and research on, on all of these different topics, you start to realize things about the commercial real estate industry that you would never have thought of. I did not realize that, that buildings uh, were responsible for 40% of greenhouse emissions. That's massive. And you, you think about everything else that we're blaming. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's like 40% in buildings and like 25% in agriculture. So like between those two things alone, yeah, it, we were talking about whatever, Impossible Burger and lab-grown meat earlier. Yeah. <laughs> between those two things alone, you've solved, you know, the majority of the climate crisis. Yeah, and here we are blaming it on cars. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm sure cars or vehicles are pretty high up on the list too, but... I mean, 40% for buildings? I mean, let's talk about that. That's uh, it's pretty cool uh, that, you know, that these companies are starting to really focus on that and solve that problem. Let's see. Forces of local regulations and market demands can accelerate the, the adoption of climate tech in the real estate industry, and it is a main reason that Green Soil Investments has decided to focus its second fund specifically on prop tech companies, reducing the carbon footprint of the built environment. It's, uh, it's wild. I mean, this article, obviously, it's just going to keep going into how much, um, how much these VC firms are really just throwing, at, throwing money at this. The startup and landscape. Tyler, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And Tyler, one of the quotes up there too, I think we, if we want to scroll up really quickly, mentioned how if you don't do this now, you're going to be penalized on the market side. It's what we're saying before. Tenants want this, right? And tenants, especially because of, for the longest time, tenants' responsibilities and landlords' responsibilities have kind of been at odds. Most of the time, landlords give triple net leases, right? And tenants pay for all the utilities and all the expenses. So landlords have no incentive, no incentive to make your building more energy efficient because they're whatever, the tenant's going to pay for it anyway. But if tenants are demanding these spaces to be more efficient and you can provide a more efficient space for your tenants, I mean, effectively you can charge higher rent or you can do what we're doing on a lot of projects where we're trying to be as green as possible and we're including your utilities in your rent. So our incentives 
as the developer and the landlord and the tenant are aligned, right? Both of us go hand in hand. When they save money, we save money, right? We save money by not having them spend as much on utilities, right? And making the building greener. And maybe we can charge more rent because they know we're, we're doing it better or maybe not. Maybe it just makes it easier for us to lease it up to people. Either way, we're both benefiting from that. Yeah, I mean, LEED certified buildings for years have had higher occupancy rates uh, because tenants want to be in buildings where they're, they're green, right? And so, I mean, for that reason alone, it's worth doing it. If, if you're, even if it's more expensive to build, but you can underwrite a lower vacancy rate, it might come out in the wash and also make the project easier to deal with in the future. Uh, they, they trade for lower cap rates. I mean, again, kind of a no-brainer here. Uh, the growing acceptance from real estate owners to adopt more sustainable products has given investors the confidence to focus on green prop tech, but they still need to find startups that have real solutions and are ready for, for venture capital investment. That's the other thing. You got to be ready for that VC investment. Um, we're ready, guys. Hey, we're, we're over here. We're ready. <laughs> yeah, we're ready. Uh, for us as a VC investor, we're seeing much better market maturity today where those businesses targeting environmental issues have become very investable and scalable businesses, which wasn't always the case before. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. If you're, if you're trying to solve the climate crisis, there's probably a lot of ways to do it that just don't make any money, right? But now with prop tech that's a that's a great way to help solve the climate crisis and make money um let's see so shadow ventures is putting initial investments of a hundred thousand dollars into five different climate prop tech startups that are participating in its accelerator that's really cool it's created an accelerator for it he said it may make additional investments i'm betting on this cycle for it to be more successful ready said the real catalyst for us in the industry has been the evolution of prop tech what you're seeing is this cycle, there are, what you're seeing, I think I should say in this cycle, there are practical and pragmatic investments that if these technologies are successful, the result will be the big impact on climate change. Yep, that's, uh, that's really neat. From the VC perspective, the last time we saw clean tech 10 years ago, a lot of people lost money because the entire industry was in the science fiction phase. That makes sense. Now we've got a whole bunch of companies in the boring phase, and we're just giving them money to scale up. So from a portfolio perspective, we can balance out the risk between those two types of investments. They, they were talking a little bit about the boring phase, which is, you know, they, they, they have products that landlords can buy now uh, to make improvements in the efficiencies of their building systems, um, which I guess is not as, as sexy as, as like funding an idea that could you know, revolutionize the world. Um, but from a, from a business perspective, it, it's way less risky to invest in something that actually has a product you can scale. So the, the biggest opportunity in climate prop tech involves the manufacturing of new types of materials like concrete, glass, and timber. 100% agree. The cost of concrete has skyrocketed. Um, glass is also not cheap. And timber, right? I mean, gosh, how much is, how much is framing lumber up this in the last – year or two years it's insane yeah i think it's actually a hundred percent or more i think it's double like the, the peak that it's ever been is like twice that's wild twice as much that's wild 
Yeah. So there you have it. That was a pretty, that was, uh, I actually really liked that article. Um, it really just diving into again, prop tech and how it can make a, a major impact on the climate and climate change. So, you know, look, if, if you're looking to invest in companies that are going to help keep the world a great place for everybody, that is definitely a sector you want to start looking at. All right, moving on to reading REITs. <laughs> this week, we are diving into uh, a pretty interesting REIT breakdown. Um, we're we're going to be covering hotels, hotel REITs. And on the surface, hotel REITs have really struggled over the last year, um, which has been interesting to, to see. Um, they're obviously starting to recover. And Andy and I are going to give you guys some color on whether we think that hotel REITs are worth investing in. So this is an article from Seeking Alpha. Hotel REITs, spring break is back. Yeah, it is. Everybody's been gone. It's been hard to get any, de any deals done because everybody's out on spring break. Um, powered by spring break demand and accelerated by the vaccine rollout, the recovery in domestic leisure travel and therefore hotel occupancy, because they're very, you know, parallelly, Parallelly, is that a word? Parallelly coordinated. Has picked up meaningfully over the past month. TSA data showed that travel is now at 60% of pre-pandemic levels after bottoming out at less than 5%. Can you imagine that? Like just one day you walk, you go to work at TSA and you're saying 5% of the people you saw the week before. Gosh. STR reported that hotel occupancy has recovered to 80% of pre-pandemic levels. 80 percent they're basically back to where they need to be the spring revival comes after a dark winter for hotel rates that was a really rough winter which reported another rough quarter in q4 but also most of the hotels i mean we're not seeing a bunch of hotels hit the market so what does that say we all need a vacation while the recovery in leisure travel may be swift business demand may take half a half decade or longer to return to pre-pandemic levels I made the new normal for virtualized work environments. I actually think that that is a very conservative estimate. It'll take half five years really to get back to business travel. I, I mean, maybe it'll take five years to get back to where it was, but I don't see how we couldn't be at 90% and two. I mean, business travel, I, I, there's something that you can't replace about from being in person. There's just not. There's trainings and all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, in-person meetings. I mean, look, if you're if you're trying to sell me something and you fly into town to meet with me, I guarantee you you're going to have my attention more than you would if you were just calling me, right? So, I mean, we, I just had somebody do that a couple weeks ago, and of course they got my attention. And Tyler, um, on that yeah. too, is we talk about – we try to highlight as much as possible. Work from home doesn't mean just work from home. It means work from anywhere. If, if you're considering that and business travel, people having more flexibility in general, you know, there's, an, there's a chance that you might have these white collar workers actually traveling more, right? So that they can yeah. actually get in and have, in rather than flying in for one day or two days in the weekend to have an in-depth consultation with the client and leaving, 
potentially they're going in for a week or two and having a full couple weeks of business so that you can get in and integrate with new potential partners or capital or whatever it is you're trying to do. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to rush back to your office. You can actually spend time and create new, more in-depth relationships that way. I mean, that's a strong potential too. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, one of my best friends, he works remotely. Um, his company's based in California, but he lives here in Nashville. And he's thinking about taking somewhere between a month and three months at the end of this year to just travel and work. Because he's like, man, I, I can work 100% remotely. It doesn't matter. I can work in Mexico as well as I can work here. So why not take the time now to just go and do it? Because I can't. And I think you're right, Andy. I think we will see a lot of people that do something like that because, you know, especially if you can Airbnb your house. I mean, this is how he's justifying it. He owns a house. He's going to Airbnb it, which will pay for his travel. It will pay for him to literally stay in all of these places. And then his income won't change. So, you know, yeah, you got to work four to eight hours uh, a day and then you're on vacation. I mean, it shakes yeah. up your environment. I, th- I think I think you're absolutely right. I think we'll totally see that. So, <laughs> I love this first sentence. The ongoing coronavirus pandemic brought obvious devastation to the leisure and hospitality industry. Uh, but the faster-than-expected vaccine approval and successful early vaccination rollout across the United States has brought renewed hope that brighter days are ahead. It has actually been insane to watch what's happened over the last 30 days as the vaccine has gotten rolled out. I mean, Nashville, and I think Nashville would look like this regardless of the vaccine. It's probably a bunch of people down on Broadway that don't believe in vaccines, but I, it, it is packed. It is absolutely packed down there. It looks because, – so because the, the bars are actually at, at a limited capacity, like seating room only, it looks busier downtown than it ever has because there's actually lines all the way down the sidewalks to get into these places. With all those people – Coming to Broadway, I guarantee you not even like 30% of them are locals because locals don't like going down there. So those people are coming into Nashville and they're renting hotel rooms. They're renting Airbnbs. Um, I mean, it's it's back to it. People are ready to get back to vacationing and having a little bit of fun. And there's so much pent-up demand for that because nobody's been able to do it for over a year that I think we're going to see the hospitality industry just absolutely explode. Fueled by the rise of the global middle class, tens of millions of new consumers each year, this is in prior to 2020, were becoming potential guests at the roughly 5 million hotel rooms across the country. Came into a screeching halt in 2020, obviously. Uh, but spring break and the vaccine rollout have accelerated that, uh, and it's picked up meaningfully. Uh, looks like, yeah, so we said it bottomed out last April at 5% of pre-pandemic levels. The TSA checkpoint data did. Uh, it has now recovered to 62% at the end of March. So hotels have recovered to 80% of pre-pandemic levels, and travel is now at 62% in the airports. So obviously people are still driving more than they probably would have before, but that's pretty – I mean, that's a lot. That's a majority. We're, we're almost back. We're not far off. Uh, and you look at, like, this slo- this rising slope here, I mean, we'll be at 100% in, like – four months if this continues at the same rate that it's doing interesting to see um hotel occupancy recovered to 58 percent uh for the week of ending march 27th which was 80 percent of pre-pandemic levels 
and compares to lows last April of 20%. So hotel occupancy has more than doubled from last April. Unless that means 20% here, in which case it quadrupled. Um, the reopened cities have seen the swiftest demand recovery, with Tampa and Phoenix leading the way. Of course, it's perfect timing for it. With occupancy rates at nearly 100% of pre-pandemic levels. Wow. Yeah, they don't even care. They're already back. Oh, wait, look at that. Uh, while the coastal shutdown cities, I love that they just call them shutdown cities, like such a backhanded compliment, you're a shutdown city. New York, Boston, San Francisco continue to see hotel occupancy rates that are less than 50% of pre-pandemic levels. I was listening to uh, The Weekly Take, which is the CBRE podcast, and uh, it's a really good podcast, by the way. I highly recommend it if you guys aren't listening to it. But they had a hotel a hotel group on, and they were talking about they they own um, hotels in Florida and I think Ohio and, and Northeast and all, whatever. They were talking about how their hotel in I think it was Ohio or maybe it was Iowa, maybe it was in Chicago, uh, was at like fourteen percent occupancy, and they had one down in Miami that was over eighty percent. I mean, just crazy to think about how different. All these cities have handled this. So this chart was actually pretty interesting. It's it's a little confusing at first because they, they don't really tell you. Um, I mean, they give you some data, but they don't give you the whole picture, right? But look at this. Hotel REIT averages were outperforming the 20-year average. And then as soon as COVID hit, they're actually underperforming the, the other hotels, the 2020 average. Um which is interesting. And so Andy and I were talking about that before the show, and it's because, well, Andy, tell them, what, tell them why you think that is. So REITs traditionally, so a again, what this data is telling us, so for right now, for example, the hotels that are represented by REITs are at, what is that, 20 30% occupancy, while overall, all hotels are at closer to 37 40% occupancy. So, you know, a, a pretty significant five to 10 percentage points higher for overall hotel occupancy versus the hotels that are represented by REITs. The reason is, is that a lot of the REITs are represent traditional capital. I mean, big institutional capital groups. And where did big institutional capital groups used to put their money before the last 10 years? New York, California. San Francisco, right? Where, where we were saying, hey, these are the places that are doing poorly, right? And these are also the places that are typically catering to the business traveler, right? And so those are those hotel properties that are doing poorly, right? The coastal cities that are mostly focused on business, while the more luck, more, you know, inner city or, you know, especially Sunbelt, I'm sorry, not inner city, like inner America um, or Sunbelt, uh, properties that are more dedicated to leisure and travel, uh, that kind of hospitality, and are on the more affordable end, those guys are doing great, yeah, as we're seeing in Phoenix. Literally almost 80% occupancy, which is right where it was before the pandemic, and vaccinations haven't even fully happened yet. I mean, if it's at 80% now, three months from now, when we're at herd immunity, you know, knock on wood, <laughs> what are they going to be at? They're going to be at 90%, you know, better than better than we have been in the last 20 years yeah i mean 
you know, it's basically New York, Boston, San Francisco, right? Like those are the cities that Andy's talking about where, where they like to invest because they're well-established. They're big cities. They're relatively risk-free. Well, they got slammed, slammed by COVID. And so you look at cities like Nashville, Atlanta, Phoenix, Tampa. I mean, they, they're absolutely crushing it. So interesting take there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of red. There's a lot of red on this chart here. This is uh, going into occupancy rates uh, for these different REIT groups. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting is that their, their delta year over year uh, for Q4 isn't actually as low for their average daily rate, which I thought was, I thought was interesting. So the average daily rate on most of these is, has gone down by around 20 to 30%. You would think, considering how low their vacancy got, that they would try and drop it lower just to incentivize people to stay there. But I guess if you don't have the travelers, it doesn't matter. Like, there's a certain point where they're just not going to – they're not – like, even if it's free, they're not going to come stay with you, right? So I thought, I thought that, was, that was a pretty interesting takeaway that I had uh, from looking at this chart. Reportfolios tend to be concentrated in the upscale end of the spectrum, owning predominantly full-service hotels and coastal urban markets that rely heavily on transient business travelers and group bookings, exactly what Andy was just touching on. While leisure demand is expected to bounce back relatively quickly when the pandemic subsides, lasting damage has been done to business and group demand. It, I mean, it really has. Um, this chart here is, is interesting. It's talking about... Um, if you're listening on the podcast, sorry, you're just going to have to go to the live stream and watch. But basically on the left-hand side, it's got earlier recovery. In the middle, it has corporate travel recovery timeline. And on the bottom, it has longer recovery. And, uh, of course, the earliest recovery was proximity was regional travel, where you can just drive, right? That recovered very quickly. Um, domestic travel by air and train, of course, that's taking a little bit longer. And then international air travel, of course, that's going to take forever because there's so many international government restrictions going on, um, which, which will be interesting to see how that affects travel over the next few years. So hotel REIT recovery, too far, too fast. Hotel REITs, along with the global leisure and tourism industry, were decimated in the early stages. I, I get that. Why are they repeating that in this article? <laughs> Um, mind-boggling 65% plunge in the span of just four weeks, and several of the highly levered small cap rates were in an all-out fight for survival. Can you imagine seeing that just within within four weeks, you have a 65% drop in your business. Positive vaccine news in late 2020 ignited a robust rally over the last five months that has seen the average hotel REIT nearly double in value. Man, if you had invested before that announcement, you'd be doing well. Because um, they still haven't even recovered to where they were before the pandemic, and we all know they're going to get there. Hotel REITs have carried the momentum of late 2020 into this year and are the fourth best-performing property sector this year, with returns of 19.6% compared to the 10.1% returns on the broad-based equity REIT ETF and the 7.1% gain on the SPDR S&P 500 trust ETF. Interesting. So, of course, cannabis. Uh, well, that did not pan out as well as I thought. Can't really see it. Um, okay. Let me find my way back to where we just were. I don't know why that just did that.
Okay, here we are. Nope, that's not it. So cannabis REITs, 37.5% returns. Regional malls, 34.6% returns. That's a great, that's, wow. It's a lot, a lot bigger than I would have thought. 26.9% in shopping centers and then followed by hotel and lodging, 19.6%. They've actually outperformed apartment REITs, which have been returning 16.6%. You know, a lot of people that invest in multifamily real estate don't realize that it's one of the, like, it's just a mid-level return. I mean, it's it's uh, it's such a, um, like, risk, relatively risk-free asset investment that you don't get as great a returns in it um, as, as you would think. But it still outperforms office. Well, that's interesting. 13%. So... Andy, is there anything else you want to say on hotel REITs? I think, uh, I mean, in my opinion, I, th- I think it's a good buy. Um, right now, if, if you're a REIT investor, I'm not a REIT investor. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe you're taking advice from somebody that doesn't invest in REITs. But, I mean, look, it, it doubled after the vaccine, and I can only see it going up from here. Um, you know, especially being in Nashville and watching tourism firsthand, it's happening. And it's only going to continue to, to increase. Um, especially after a lot of the data that's coming out uh, on on COVID now, I think uh, I think you know I think we're past it. I think that uh, mentally, uh, the majority of the country is exhausted and doesn't really care anymore. And it's kind of getting to that point where it's like, you know what? If you are uncomfortable, um, stay at home. That's totally fine. Uh, but everybody else is ready to get back to to life as normal. Andy, what are your thoughts on hotel rates? I mean, Tyler, you know, and we can't really share too many details, but, you know, we're investing and considering investing actually in several hotels, actually, in Nashville. So we obviously we think that hotels are going to be doing just fine, especially as the economy recovers. So uh, even if we're not necessarily your preeminent read experts, I think we can provide that level of color for you guys is that, you know, we do believe in the hotel industry and especially, as I said before, if you want to stay away from the REITs that primarily own the coastal cities, then you're going to be doing better. We talked about a few weeks ago here about Extended Stay America, how it was, what was it, a multi-billion dollar deal that yeah. they were bought out by a big uh, firm like Blackstone or somebody or Starwood Property or somebody. Was it Starwood Property Group? I think it, I think it was Starwood. Starwood. Yeah. Yeah. Starwood bought Extended Stay America, which is a chain of, you know, moderate to low uh, extended stay, uh, moderate to low rates for extended stays of, you know, typically a week or more, you know, those hotels were doing great. And they were essentially at full occupancy before even all of these ones were, you know, by like the, the, the last quarter of last year when everyone was still suffering. And it's because, you know, of affordability and the locations of these places. So, you know, I would strongly consider looking at, you know, your Midwestern or your Sunbelt REITs in hotels. I think those still might be undervalued and you might be able to get some outsized gains there. And while you still having the caveat on international travel, right, for business demand, and that's why, Tyler, I think they really say business demand of travel might not fully recover. So that's going to be to your gateway cities, to your New Yorks and LAs and San Francisco's of the world, when you know America is going to get through its vaccination struggles here. 
but the rest of the world, Europe, uh, Europe's pretty far behind, you know, and Latin America and Asia are even more far behind. So they're going to take a little while longer than America is, even if American business community rebounds. So that that is going to be negative downside towards those gateway cities. Yep, I agree. All right, now for this week's wild card. Andy, what you got for us? Well, Tyler, I appreciate everyone sticking around here, listening to us on the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Podcast. This is the wild card segment where every week we try to highlight a niche specific sector of the real estate industry that you can explore and potentially take advantage of for yourself. So this week, we're actually going to be talking about the life sciences and telehealth industry for commercial real estate. And we have this article here from Globe Street up first. Here's how telehealth will shake up healthcare real estate. And they're saying that healthcare entities will likely need less space for admin roles as people continue to work remotely. The healthcare real estate industry is big, right? There's $1 trillion in the healthcare real estate market. And this is, we've been talking about tech and prop tech for a while. There's been a forced adoption of telehealth here with rates more than doubling in 2020. And telehealth is where, you know, you can go on your phone, actually. You can type in, uh, you can type in onto your app, you know, you can have a virtual consultation for a doctor and they can give you a prescription because there are some things that you don't need to be in person for, right? When you just have generalistic symptoms and you're just like, I just need, you know, a prescription. Just give me some, just give me some antibiotics. Like you don't have to necessarily go in and actually have blood work or is, is testing your blood pressure really going to change the, change the, what their diagnosis is. You know, a lot of the times it's not necessarily going to happen. So with that, happening with the rising rates of telehealth, there's going to be potentially, potentially less demand for healthcare real estate. But the the interesting thing about that is that it's not necessarily going to be on less treatment space, because we're going to have an aging population that requires more treatment, actually, right? People are getting older and older, and people are living longer, right? The boomers are getting older and older. And they're going to actually need more beds, more healthcare space to actually treat them physically in person. But we might need less administration roles, admin roles, as people continue to work remotely and less all that space on site dedicated to that. Maybe they can open up more hospital beds where you had, you know, just huge rooms of papers, right? And with that efficiencies in your portfolio, it's, it's going to be something to think about especially as we're talking about these life science funding driving lab demand and development. So when we're talking about niche opportunities, this might be an opportunity to go after, uh, especially if you're someone with more money who you can partner up on a bigger deal with, then you might be wanting to consider life sciences because life sciences is, there's been money flowing into it, ignited by breakthroughs in immuno-oncology, neonatology and other technological advances translating into commercial real estate leasing, right? Life science fundings comes from governments, risk and venture capital, institutional capital, and those allocations have been rising with things like Project Warp Speed, sending billions from the government towards COVID-19 research and biomanufacturing. Believe me, if you think that's going away, it's not going away, right? People are saying 
and there's a debate about this, but it's likely that COVID is going to stay around in some sense forever. And you're going to have to need booster shots and booster vaccines. And there's going to be new variants and UK variant and South Africa variant and Brazil variant or whatever. And, you know, there's going to be more money into life sciences and biotechnology in general, right? We just talked about how today in our show today, we just talked about how Nashville is increasing all these biotech companies coming here. It's because as, as Nicole Riley says, life sciences is an asset class you can't ignore anymore with vacancies falling from 9.8% to 7.3%, where you have to actually build lab space speculatively to keep up with the pace of venture capital. So life science real estate, what is actually life science real estate? It's specialized, like you can see here on this lab. It's very highly specialized office and laboratory space. And so while this might not be something that's super accessible for the average individual person, right? If you can find people that are doing this, this could be a very good niche to get into because it is so complicated, right? You need special procedures. You need high quality ventilation systems that filter all the microbes out of the air. And when you're doing that, right, these, and you have to build these, and not every construction company is going to be able to build something like this, for example. And not every single tenant is going to be able to use something like this. So you're going to be targeting a very specific select group of people with a very specific select niche asset. So that is obviously always a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because maybe it's harder to find a buyer to dispose of your property. If after you build it, but also it's a blessing because when things are in a niche, you have the ability to really take advantage of inefficiencies in the market. And that's how you make money in real estate, right? In, in finding things that are undervalued, providing extra value going above and beyond. And that might be something that's going to be happening here in the life science real estate industry where they, as we said, they have public and private companies pouring 16.55 billion into the biotech and life science sector and getting significant funding from the federal government with California by itself getting 5 billion bucks, right? So the, as, as we're saying here, the types of life science tenants are biotech firms, pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, medical equipment manufacturers, digital healthcare, and genomics, which is going to be pretty cool when they're able to, you know, dissect your, your genes and say, oh, you have risk of whatever this disease and they're going to be able to treat it and have gene therapy and all this kind of stuff. This is not going away. They are, they say here, they are as much like tech companies as you can get. They need desk space and computer power for these digital healthcare and genomics companies versus the medical device companies like an assembly line with pharmaceutical and biotech companies focused on laboratories, which will require four times as much space per person as offices, right? So the patience is required for potential life science landlords. They're, these companies take a long time to get revenue. They're not companies that are gonna need a lot of space overnight. They're capital intensive. They have a lot of equipment needs, but it leads to, because of this variation, a range of leasing and investment opportunities, right? The better way to see it as a real estate person is to think about what my property is best for underneath that larger umbre umbrella 
maybe it's not biotech or pharma, but maybe it's digital healthcare or medical devices, which is assembly in a clean room. So the, the point being said here, and you can see here, there's a picture of HVAC systems must meet strict standards, including HEPA filtration. It's not just your average office building. You have to build them different from your regular building. They have a much more infrastructure capacity under the hood. And the fact that they use these buildings more like machines, right? That have to keep running all the time. If you have a biotech tank that's trying to create some sort of gene therapy or you know the vaccines, you're building vaccines in there, you know, you can't afford to have your HVAC run out and lose air conditioning, right? You need specialized equipment to make sure that all that stuff stays up to date. But the point being said is that this is a rising, rising sector. It is going to be something that we're going to be seeing a lot into the future as we have more technology, as we have more ability to do telemedicine, as we have more people aging and requiring new interventions and new treatments. So life sciences definitely should be a sector of the real estate market that you guys have in mind as you're trying to potentially choose your niche into the future. And Tyler, that's what we always try to talk to people about is when you're trying to get first get started in commercial real estate, you know, you may think, oh, I want to do everything. I want to figure out everything. But finding your niche is really the most important thing as a way to get started, because otherwise you're going to be overwhelmed by all the different requirements like for something like life science companies have, right? And you're going to be overwhelmed. So we really recommend here finding your niche and being able to choose a sector like this, or we talked about marijuana, or we talked about, you know, micro units before focusing on those and really going for that as the best practice and best strategies going forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Andy. I appreciate you diving into that. I mean, look, as they say, the riches are in the niches, right? And and if you can find your way into uh, being one of the, the few providers of such a niche kind of real estate, um, it's, you'll, there's, there's a lot of success to be had there. It's finding your blue ocean. It's finding that one area where you can be, you know, maybe more successful than anybody else. You know, I've got, I've got buddies that they really niche down and, and, you know, they're, all they do is develop dollar generals, right? Like that's a niche. And uh, there's, there's a lot of success to be had in, in those sectors of commercial real estate. Well, that is it for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you joined us live and asking your questions, don't forget you can always join us on Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, for everybody that is watching on the YouTube channel, don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can keep getting the updates as we go live and you can join in. And if you're listening on the podcast, please don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you guys next week.